0: All hands, this is the captain speaking. Starfleet has confirmed reports that Romulus was destroyed two weeks ago by an ultra nova in the adjacent Toba system. The colonies and subjugated worlds that survived are in need of humanitarian aid. Arabella has been assigned to a convoy that will cross the neutral zone in order to provide assistance. We are uncertain of the reception we will receive. But it is
1: it likely we will be met with resistance from the Romulan people. They won't want to accept charity from the Federation. But the captain says we should be prepared to accept evacuees and deal with confrontations with rogue members of the military. Security teams will need to be ready at a moment's notice. We'll we begin will begin drills,
2: drills at, 0800 at 0800 to prepare. Sick Bay may be inundated with ill and wounded. I don't want my department to be overwhelmed. Many of you were a part of the staff aboard the Tiberius. You are seasoned veterans. I know you are fully
0: capable of handling this situation. Shields up. Red alert.
1: Captain, our shields cannot take much more.
0: Beyond the neutral zone, the Romulan people suffer in chaos. The Hobus Ultra Nova laid waste to their fractured empire. Stability has crumbled, and infrastructure ravaged. Friend and foe amass in shadows, waiting to pick their bones. Yet the Federation takes nothing but their burdens. These are the voyages of Arabella, the flagship of the 7th Fleet. Its mission, to defend the helpless, to render aid where needed. To befriend a former enemy, to boldly go where no Starfleet vessel has gone before
3: hi there and welcome to the ready room the trex and sci-fi microcast. this is episode number sixty one I'm Rick Moyer. I play Counselor Margon and his adopted son Brex on the Arabella. Kenny is busy uh, working away and uh, doing some stuff for the Guild. And of course his life is crazy busy. And Jen is also very busy right now, so I am kind of soloing it here. Uh, Not really doing the show. I'm just going to introduce the readings and tell you that uh, we're going to have some great stuff today. Thank you so much for all those who are reading and writing The Season 10 is fantastic, and we really appreciate it. So, without any further ado, here we go. Take a listen to what's going on.
4: Casey was a little restless, as it would be a few days before he would take command of the gamma shift. He had a sense of uneasiness which he could not seem to shake. It was like a shaken bottle of champagne in which the cork was about to pop. Casey tried unsuccessfully to put this feeling behind him and found himself unconsciously stroking his rabbit foot for good luck. He had read the personnel reports of the crew that he would oversee on his shift until he knew their records inside out before deciding to go to sickbay to visit his wife and introduce himself to Dr. Drett. He got up from the couch in his quarters and ordered the computer to replicate one red rose which he would take to his wife in sickbay. Casey picked up the rose and headed down the corridor to the turbo lift, which would take him to Lake 5 in sickbay.
0: Doctor, Ryla turned from her conversation to see Ensign Delin approaching her. The Ensign's steel-grey eyes were piercing, and her stare seemed to contradict the warm smile she offered the chief medical officer. If Ryla had not met her before and determined her to be a friendly individual, the look would have given her the impression that the young woman disliked her. Despite their bright coloring, her beautiful eyes were distinctly Romulan, or maybe it was simply her facial expression. Dr. Dret wasn't quite sure. Yet every crewman had been required to undergo a physical exam before Arabella departed, and Ryla was the attending physician during Shelby's visit. The trill liked Ensign sense of humor, and they shared a number of laughs during the brief time Shelby was in sickbay. Ryla was certain the smile she offered now was genuine. The smaller woman returned the greeting with a smile of her own, which was always framed by dimples. Before they could further the conversation, Ryla's attention was stolen away by the newcomers who had halted their procession towards the runabout. The taller of the two men was staring at her, but it wasn't the Chief of Security that mirrored Drett's new expression of displeasure. The Chief of Operations, Lieutenant Commander Catan, had obviously been shoved off balance by her presence. The source of their contention had occurred almost a decade before, and neither of them had moved past the incident, though it wasn't for the lack of trying on Ryla's part. Well, she had tried once, and though he had claimed to have accepted her apology, it was obvious he still begrudged her. If there was one thing the Trill had learned from their first meeting, it was never to try Ferengi tube grubs before viewing a hollow of the presenter's girlfriend. The impression she made was not a good one, and his reaction wasn't either. The confrontation had resulted in a number of choice words and a few subsequent encounters that ended in disaster. The latest occurred before Arabella left port. She had tried to push him off on Mayella, but Dr. Peterson had made arrangements to spend the evening with her husband, leaving Ryla to take the patient she dreaded seeing. The tension was palpable during the physical, and she may or may not have handled him a little roughly as a result. Okay, so she jobbed him unnecessarily with the hypo when he grumbled a slight. At the time, she felt he deserved it. Truth be told, she enjoyed torturing him, though she wasn't exactly sure why. Ryla was anything but a cross person, and she made friends easily. Catan was the only exception to her rule. Perhaps it was his rugged Klingon upbringing. He was human, and at one time she wondered if his childhood had contributed to his socially dysfunctional manner. But since then, she had observed him from afar, and decided that his dysfunction was only tied to her. As the two officers advanced once again, the doctor reminded herself to maintain a professional air. (sighs) You're the chief medical officer of the 7th Fleet's flagship. Mind your manners, she told herself. With cool self-possession, her gaze swept over Katan's handsome face. Good morning.
1: Catan acknowledged the doctor's greeting with a perfunctory nod. For the life of him, Katan couldn't figure out why the Trill CMO aroused such conflicting emotions in him. She was, without a doubt, highly competent in her field, a trait he always admired and respected. And he had to admit... He couldn't help but find the intricate pattern of spots that followed the curve of her neck up to her delicate ears, alluring, and the occasional flash of aggression that lit her eyes never failed to quicken his pulse. "'So much like Kalara,' he mused, recalling his long-lost love. And as he made the mental comparison, a part of him felt as though he were betraying Kalava's memory. "'Perhaps my response to Dret is fueled by feelings of guilt,' he thought in a rare moment of introspection. <laughs> "'That's nonsense,' he amended." The doctor was rude and aloof. That's more than enough reason to keep her a dead distance. He absently rubbed his right biceps, remembering the pain of the doctor's unusually rough application of her hyperspray. Good morning. Done any hyperspray towards you lately? He asked, and immediately regretted it.
2: After greeting the doctor, Shelby walked past the woman, heading directly to the security station. The half-romulan began checking the sensor calibrations and ensuring that everything that was needed for this mission... As far as intel, from the Arabella's computer had been transferred to the shuttle. Her back was to anyone new entering the craft. Although she did hear some voices, she was completely wrapped up in her work. Her fingers flew across the console, as she made a few subtle adjustments. Reaching for her tricorder, the young ensign checked her work, and she found it to be satisfactory. As she sat there, a voice, which she had not heard in a long time, filled the shuttle. The shuttle. Catan. He had been one of her hand-to-hand teachers from the academy, and although they hadn't had many exchanges outside of class, she respected the man. On the verge of saying something to him, she found herself overhearing a snippet of the conversation between Dret and Catan. She went silent. She had learned long ago, although she had not always practiced it that there were certain situations which had vibes that one picked up, and it was best to wait and see before stepping in."
0: A dangerous look flashed in Ryla's hazel-brown eyes, yet she managed to keep an otherwise composed expression. Before another word could be uttered between the Trill and Terran, the first officer entered the shuttle bay. The doctor fired a smile at Catan that was less amiable than it was mischievous and turned a softened look to Joseph de and Eric James to greet them in turn. Captain Savril's outwardly placid expression was fixed on the viewscreen on the Romulan ship the runabout would soon be docking with. It wouldn't be long before the craft was swallowed by the void of space as it slipped into the cloaked section of the disabled ship. Regardless of her emotionless appearance, the Vulcan always felt a twinge of anxiety when her husband led missions such as these it was the one reason she had very nearly chosen another officer for her second-in-command. Though her feelings did not sink to the depths of her psyche, as it did in most of her kind, emotion was not something she generally had trouble suppressing. It was pushed just below the surface, and on occasion rose to animate her dark eyes, which were set on an inversely dispassionate face. Her decision to name Eric as her first officer came after much thought and many discussions between she and the Alorian commander. He had always been confident that the two of them had much more to offer Starfleet as a team than they did otherwise, and his point had been proven on several occasions in the past. She had no doubt that she could trust in his abilities to command, or in her own ability to send him into danger. It was only the deep-seated fear of loss that challenged her emotional suppression now. The loss of her homeworld occurred 67 years before her birth, but she still experienced the ghost pain through her parents. This, coupled with the death of her first child, an infant son who died two decades before during Wolf 359, was the root of her internal struggle. Yet aside from the day her son died, it had always been a battle she won. She slowly turned her expressive eyes to the chief science officer. Status, Mr. Zrem.
3: Margon checked the status of the away team. It would be some time before they arrived back with the first of the refugees. He stepped into the turbo left. Speaking into the air, he said, Main bridge. The familiar whir of the turbo lift sounded as the counselor took a deep breath. (sighs) He loved his job, but the stress of having a 12-year-old living with him was unexpectedly trying. He found it hard to concentrate on his counseling job. How could he care so much about this young man and at the same time feel in constant conflict with him? Margon was pondering these thoughts and more when he realized that the turbolift door had been open for some time. The bridge officers were staring at him, and he came to his senses. Walking onto the bridge, he made his way down to the seat next to the captain. She acknowledged him. "'Good morning, Captain,' he said with a smile. "'Thought I'd check in with you on the bridge crew before our visitors arrived.' Captain Savril responded kindly but calm. "'Thank you, Counselor.' "'I believe we are prepared to deal with the situation.' "'Yes, I do too, but I don't need to tell you that the tension is high with everyone. This has to be hard for many.' Savril looked at him in an assuring way and seemed to connect with Margon. "'I'm fine, Counselor,' she said. "'I wasn't implying that you weren't,' he said musingly. He knew full well the feelings she was trying to suppress. This was a big test for her and Eric leading the away team.' He knew full well he would never get her to talk about it on the bridge. Perhaps someday in her ready room she would open up, but that would be sometime down the road. Counselors and Vulcans didn't mix well, except in this situation. Margon loved children, and so did Savril. They connected on a family level, and that was sure to be helpful. Even though she could suppress emotions, she wasn't immune to the stress of them. Sitting at the con,
5: Galdar watched idly as the icons representing the remainder of the fleet moved about his navigation display. With the self-correcting intercept solution in place, there was little for him to be doing here and now. In another time and place, it probably would have been him flying the runabout to the Romulan vessel, but following the loss of the Tiberius, his career had taken a different path. Flying shuttles out of Starbase 416 had proven less than interesting, and so he'd turned his attention to flying larger craft. First, the Saber-class Luxembourg, and now, the Intrepid-class Arabella. Overall, he was pleased to sit where he did, but on odd days, like today, a small part of him missed the benefits of a small ship posting. Running his eye across the curved array of displays again, something caught his interest. A reading spiked on an unusual frequency that may have meant nothing, but also could have significance beyond its size. With everyone else concentrating on things beyond the shield boundary, Looking for hostiles or more strays, Galdar had focused his attention on the damaged ship before them. Nothing unusual had snagged his interest so far, but this brief spike deserved a little investigation. Not wishing to disturb the science officer, currently in conversation with the captain, he turned and said to the ensign at the starboard engineering station and waved him over to his position. Gosit, gosset, gosset! Ensign Davius shined, cursed to himself.
1: The Arabella was sending a bloody away team to a crippled Romulan freighter to retrieve people of high political significance, and whom will a victim of a bloody coup? This was exactly his freaking area of bloody expertise, and where was he in this emergency? What vital task was he assigned? He was bloody well in the bloody damn brig in the middle of a level three diagnostic. In fact, if this got any bloodier, it was going to bleed to death. ''Okay, enough self-pity. Officers' initiative time,'' Darius thought to himself. Assuming Decal and Dunn and Dailene, for Pete's sake, were more than sufficient for the task over there, he was damn well going to be sure this side was ready for the possible hell that would be riding in with the first shuttle load of Rommies. Dropping his tools into the carry pod, he rose from a kneeling position and fell into field-op mode. He gestured at the few other security officers present. ''Come on, guys, you're all volunteers.'' Uh, Anson said one Chang Darius vaguely remembered but he could be wrong we're supposed to be certifying the brute containment systems look Chang Darius retorted right now the boss and Dunn are on their way over to the Romulan ship and assuming they aren't walking into a bear trap they're going to be dropping about 50 potential security risks right into our laps in less than what 30 minutes so what say we at least make sure those risks are minimized alright but the man began look Darius interrupted I promise on my mummy's grave that I will personally stand on the neck of anyone who will be put in the brig until we get up and running after we secure the bloody circus that will be waiting for us in the shuttle bays move Darius pulled the rest of the crew along behind him well my name's not Chang the last man in the section protested lamely Darius didn't hear him as he jabbed his combat. badge to the cannon the cannon sat in the shuttle and looked over to his security team as Darius called him he tapped his combat in reply. Go ahead, Shane. Darius continued to walk as he talked to the chief. Boss, I'm arranging security staff to be situated around the ship in important areas. Very good, Ensign. Have at least three officers ready in the shuttle bay, but at least two on each access points around the entrance. But I can't stress this enough. Be subtle about it. Let's not look like we're expecting trouble. Any hint of trouble, no matter how small, contact the captain immediately. It's in your hands, Darius. Darius smiled, and he turned round to look at the security staff behind him. Just as he was about to speak, DeCallan came back on. "'Oh, and Darius, have Chang as your number two. "'The out.' "'I'm not Chang,' came a voice from behind the group. "'The last man from the brig was catching up. "'Oh, great. Who are you?' Darius asked. "'Collins, that's Chang,' the man responded, pointing. "'Right, sorry, you two. Collins, ship should be coming on in an hour or so anyway. "'Go race them. Chang?' Who are the biggest headbangers we got? Chang, considered. Actually, Katan and you. Darius gave him a withering glare. All right. Go get the next two, whoever they are, and post them at the entrance to security office. Then you and Collins take up post at Main Engineering. You see any roblins who aren't escorted by Starfleet personnel, shoot first and apologise later. But the Cowan said, Chang protested, I heard him, believe me, if this goes sour, you'll have more options from there than you will in some hell way. Go! it, he called as he sprinted down the hall with Collins in tow. Okay, rest of you guys, we do it just like the boss said. Kid gloves on. No glaring, no threatening postures, etc. But don't take a stanner in the name of diplomacy. You see a hostile act, you shoot to kill... Well, Stan. We can always revive them later on. Well, I guess. Security team moved out.
2: As Catan thought about the awkward discussion with Dret, he glanced over at Insendalen. He had no doubt about the security officer's capability. He'd seen plenty of examples of her martial prowess during his brief time at the Academy. But he couldn't help but wonder how she was handling the situation. Even though she didn't appear to have close ties to the Romulan side of her family, it had to be wrenching to see the once proud empire reduced to ashes. She's a trained professional. He thought. Hopefully, she'll be able to keep her emotions from affecting her judgment. As he took his seat, Catan thought back on the moment when he learned that the cadet from his past would be part of the Arabella's crew. The night had started innocently enough, just a meeting for drinks with his old friend, Joe DeCallan. The security chief had been regaling him with a story about the new Romulan protege that had joined his staff.
3: Can you believe
1: it? A knife. ''Straight out of the blue,'' the carlin said. Catan looked at Joseph. ''And you didn't see it?'' Joe put his glass down and replied. ''I knew she was up to something, but she was quick. Darn quick with a blade.'' Catan laughed. <laughs> ''You've always been a bit slow on the slide knife technique.'' Raising his hand to the barman, Joseph waved his finger over the two empty glasses. The Carlo lifted a curious bow. ''You can talk. I had you over on your backside with that staff move.'' ''I taught you that,'' laughed Katan. "'And I'm better than you now,' the Cannon countered. "'The two men laughed and clunked glasses. "'Perhaps,' Qatar said. "'But that's only because I prefer to devote my time to the study of the Black laugh. "'It is a much more elegant weapon with a rich history.'
2: The door of the afterburner opened, and for a moment it seemed that no one was there at all. Then the lithe, sinewy figure of the security ensign walked in, her eyes studying everything. Sometimes she hated being so on all the time. She wore a comfortable black V tunic and a pair of casual pants and boots. Shelby had opted to leave her silky locks of midnight down in errant curls. Finding a place off the beaten path, she sat and allowed the atmosphere to soak into her consciousness. Then she took in the patrons there, studying things of interest. When she was finished drinking in the sights, her eyes circled back to the pair at the bar that interested her the most. There together stood her security chief, who never tired of pointing out her mistakes, and a man whom she hadn't seen in years, the of the House of Gaul. Something which the young ensign had done on the sly while attending the academy was to learn to lip-read. A useful skill at times. Taking a break from her observations, the waiter took the dark-haired woman's order for a blood wine. Upon the man's return with her drink, Shelby sipped some of the potent brew. Then she leaned forward, while continuing to watch the room at random intervals.
1: Unaware of their watcher, Joseph looked over at Catan. Part Romulan mate," She's good, and dare I say, pretty darn good looking. Catan leaned on his elbow. When I was at the academy, I knew a half woman as well. She's quite the enigma, all fire and burning ambition. Well, hidden beneath a cool, almost Vulcan demeanor, Katan gave a lecherous grin, (laughs) and she could fill out a training uniform quite admirably. Am I sensing that you had some attraction for the young cadet? Stringing his words out a little, the colonel smirked. was a fine-looking woman, no doubt. Just not the type of girl I'd normally go for. Ah, you mean she was pretty and didn't have ridges as a forehead? Chuckled the security chief. Katan slammed his mug on the counter, spilling half of his beer. The two men glared at each other for a moment and then shouted, KAPLA! as they burst into laughter.
2: After watching the pair for a time, Dalen finished off her Klingon blood wine and she meandered her way a path to the bar.
1: Turning round, Joseph saw Shelby walking towards him. I oh, hope, here she comes. Gatan turned round, still laughing and lifting his glass to his lips when his eyes met hers. His mouth dropped open and the glass slid from his hands, shattering on Cullen's boot.
2: Leaning between the pair... Daylin smiled at them knowingly. Boys, even though she knew they were both older than she was, it was part of the game to play, and she wasn't about to stop.
6: Ensign Hermeralto, or Herm as everyone called him, was on a mad dash to the shuttle bay. He'd have been there sooner, but he was so excited to hear that contact had been made with a Romulan ship that he ignored the part of the shipwide message that said they were being shuttled and not transported so he was coming to the shuttle bay by way of the transporter room. He skidded to a stop at the shuttle bay desk, crashing into it. The lieutenant security officer behind the desk shot him an irritated look. Lieutenant Dunn, isn't it? How long before they're here? How many wounded? What can I do to help? Herm was nearly jumping up and down with excitement.
7: As Lieutenant Commander Zrem finished giving his latest long-range sensor report to his captain, he still sensed she was troubled. "'I still had not been able to detect any other vessels in the area, Captain. "'Even after transferring additional power to the long-range sensors "'and modulating the main deflector dish, still nothing, sir,' Zrem said with his usual efficient tone. "'Thank you, Mr. Zrem. "'Did you try scanning for singularity tachyon emissions? "'A cloaked warbird would still give off such a trail,' Sivril said, "'trying to keep the concern for her husband out of her voice and tone.' That was one of the first things I checked, Captain. You know I'm quite aware of that. If I might say, you seem ill at ease. Commander James and his team know what they're doing. Trust in his judgment and their skill, Zrem said to his Vulcan friend. Coming from another, Savril would have found the comments out of line, even too familiar. But this was her friend, and she allowed Zrem a certain amount of latitude not given to many aboard her ship. I do trust the commander and his team. It's the Romulans I am wary of, but I appreciate your reassurance. Carry on, Mr. Zrem," the captain said as Zrem returned to his science station. His mind wandered to the times he and Surreal had come in contact over the years. Even though she was Vulcan and he, Andorian, a friendship had formed that defied the history of their two cultures. A couple hundred years back, Vulcans and Andorians had been very distrustful of each other and had nearly gone to war on more than one occasion. If not for the founding of the Federation, that might have come to pass. And with Vulcans, a much diminished culture after the loss of their homeworld, it was unclear what damage such a conflict would have caused. Zrem, for one, was happy that never had happened. Even though he found trust a difficult thing to give, there was one person aboard that he trusted with his life. The ironic thing was, most of his species would have found that person to be the last one they would trust.
4: As the deck crew finished prepping the runabout presidio for launch, Catan settled in next to the pilot's seat and activated his pad. Within moments, the Chief of Ops established a link with the Arabella's main computer and downloaded everything he could find regarding Romulan starship specifications and power systems. Unfortunately, due to the decades-long Cold War between the Romulan Star Empire and the Federation, there seemed to be a relative paucity of information available. After a quick search, Catan pulled up the specs on the disabled Romulan ship. Drenet Class Warp Transport. Crew complement of 80. Minimal weaponry. Powered by an artificial quantum singularity drive. Catan scrolled down to the rest of the information on his pad. Mostly conjectural data regarding possible deck configuration. With the tap of a finger, he forwarded the information to the rest of the away team, then turned to address them. I've transferred what little intelligence we have on the disabled vessel to your personal access display devices. He broke into a half-smile. There's not much to go on, but look on the bright side, this will be a great opportunity for us to update the fleet's intel.
6: She lay on the hard bunk, the tattered mattress provided very little in the way of comfort. She stared up at the unoccupied bed above, her eyes tracing the lines of the metal mesh supports. Repair crews continued to move through the cargo hold in an effort to fix damaged systems, while two security officers stood off to one side to ensure calm amongst the refugees. The dingy and cramped cargo hold of the transport ship had been her home since... Nala still couldn't feel any sense of loss at the destruction of Romulus. In an instant, her home, her family, her culture had been wiped away, but her shame remained. So many of the people, whom she had wished death upon all her life, had been killed in that moment. The high command that had branded her father a traitor to the Empire, the Senate which had stripped her family of their titles and holdings, and the myriad of faces which looked upon her with scorn for as long as she could remember. All gone now, and yet her pain and her anger remained. The surviving senators in the more luxurious decks above were a constant reminder, and she would never forget. She swung her feet off the bunk and sat up. Her fellow refugees milled about with worried expressions on their faces. Venerals, she said to herself contemptuously. They still clung to the hope that the Empire would endure, provide for them, and return to glory. To Nala, they were already dead. She walked the length of the hold and moved closer to where the security officers stood. They were having a conversation, and Nala moved close enough to pick out a few words. Loan Merhal, one of them sneered. It struck her like a thunderclap. Humans, Starfleet, the Federation, was here. Her hands balled into fists and she felt her rage burn. Of all the parties which had wrought the downfall of her family, the Federation had been beyond her reach and desire for vengeance. It had been the Federation which had tricked her father into his betrayal. Somehow their Starfleet had convinced her father to turn on his empire and on her. Now this hate settled deeper into her heart."
0: As the runabout lifted from the deck, the officer's focus settled on the task at hand. "'Presidio, you are clear for departure. Good luck,' said the flight control officer in a clipped accent of an origin none of them could quickly place. "'Thank you, Ensign,' replied Eric as he piloted the ship through the force field. The Presidio comfortably seated four officers in the forward section. It could transport 36 individuals in the aft, where Dr. Dret now sat with her medkit resting on her lap. Ryla leaned slightly to her left and peered out the small viewport as the runabout moved gracefully over the dorsal portion of its mothership. Banking, the craft then passed the starboard nacelle, which momentarily cast the runabout's interior in a soft blue light. Her view was limited to the shrinking Arabella as they edged closer to their ultimate destination. She soon noted the front of the saucer section, and knew the bridge crew was watching them as well. Sitting next to Eric James, Catan craned his neck to catch a glimpse of the Arabella before it receded into the background. As the Presidio passed over the ship's primary hull, he watched the runabout's distant shadow racing over the saucer, temporarily obscuring the registry number adorning her gull-gray plating. He closed his eyes, imagining how the sight must look to the bridge crew. The Presidio, in Katan's mind, was one of the finest mid-range transports the fleet had at its disposal. The Vogla class runabout had an aggressive profile, closely resembling a streamlined flattened wedge. Its powerful warp nacelles were integrated into its hull, eliminating the possible structural weakness represented by the nacelle pylons. If viewed from the bridge, he imagined the runabout must look like a lethal, silvery projectile knifing through the void towards the disabled Romulan vessel. In his mind's eye, he envisioned the Presidio's duranium-tritanium skin gleaming brightly against the inky blackness of space, a shining beacon of hope to the beleaguered Romulans. A faint smile formed on Catan's face. We are like the heroes of old, he thought. Rushing to the aid of others against incredible odds with no promise of reward other than the honor of doing good. It will be glorious.
2: Sitting at the security station, Shelby kept focused on everything related to the ship they were approaching. To say that she was skeptical of their welcome was an understatement. Needing distraction, she shifted her gaze to the chief of security, thinking about her time with him so far. It had been interesting, to say the least, and she had yet to figure DeCatlin out. A sensor went off on her console, redirecting her attentions, and she reported, The ship's gradually losing atmosphere from one of the cargo bays, sir. Some sort of containment failure from the looks of it. It isn't much compared to what else is going on, but that puts us on the clock even more. Returning her attentions to the vessel outside the transparency, Dalin knew, without even needing to be there. What the away team's reception would be. They would not be appreciated by some immediately. There was little that could be done, though, to change such minds. Despite whatever they thought, they needed help. The vision of the cloaked ship was ominous, dark, and foreboding. Lines which usually flowed along into elegant curves were abruptly cut off or merged into the blackness of space. It had almost a magical quality as if an invisible hand had swept a paintbrush across a large section of the craft, and then left it. The edges of her lips curled at the absurdity of her thoughts. Breathing inwardly, the ensign sat back, continued to monitor the situation. Eric's eyes grew distant as they approached the wounded vessel, and the guided him where sensors registered empty space. He had no expectations for what would happen next. Plan for the worst, and hope for the best. People needed saving, and the task had fallen to them. I believe that I've located the shuttle bay, Commander James said softly, and plotted a course into one of the voids. He had a sense for technology that went beyond words. It was an insight that allowed him a very accurate talent of knowing how the various components of something came together to create a new whole. His eyes glanced towards the security station "'Then he directed his words to the security officers. "'Mr. Ducallan and Ensign Dalen, once aboard the ship, "'I want you to provide security for Dr. Drett. "'We are here to help, and I don't want there to be any misunderstandings on our presence. "'I want everyone to keep their weapons holstered unless we find ourselves seriously threatened. "'Let's try to win them over with kindness and keep the shock and awe as our backup plan. "'Aye, sir,' Shelby said with an affirmative nod, Joseph sat looking at the itinerary that the XO had given them all. After a moment, he glanced up from his pad to look at Eric. DeCallan nodded at him and moved his holster a little bit behind him so he could draw it easily enough, but it would not be on show for all to see. He thought the first officer looked calm. Joseph wondered if, on the inside, he shared the nervous feelings that he himself currently had. Catan who was seated nearby him, looked eager. His left leg shook gently. Shelby had her head up, but her eyes closed. She was concentrating. He took a deep breath. He had no idea what Dr. Dret was feeling, probably anxious at all the patients she would be seeing. Part of him wanted to get this mission over with and return to the ship, but the other part ached for the excitement. A drop of perspiration Dripped onto his boot from his forehead. It was either getting hot, or his adrenaline was pumping harder than usual. Tapping his pad, he checked over the security measures he had left for his department. Lieutenant Dunn was manning the shuttle bay ready for their return. The others would be positioned out of sight, but still around the ship. He looked forward to seeing if he could get a good view of what was going on beyond the port but Catan's hair was in the way. Joe gave up and sat back and closed his eyes. He'd make the officer tie his hair back in five minutes. He thought that would lighten the mood.
1: Catan pulled back his hair, and Joseph was able to view their destination. His mouth dropped slightly. Oh my, he whispered to himself. Opening her eyes, Dalene studied the alien vessel carefully while the shuttle's engines hummed in the background, and carried them to a position where they could land on the foreign flight bay. It was additionally an odd thing to wrap one's head around when one knew that at some point you would become part of the vast blackness of space. Upon slipping under the cloak, which still camouflaged certain portions of the ship, Ruyler straightened as the Pasido entered the Romulan craft. The bay seemed to inhale all light and breathe out a dark haze that swirled in the sterile air as their runabouts sliced through it. The Trill could see that no one was standing ready to meet them, and wondered what awaited beyond the bay. She rose, gripping her medikit, as the shuttle set down on the deck plates. The passage separated the fore and aft compartments, slid open, and the security portion of their rescue team stepped through and proceeded to the main hatch. The ramp opened slowly as Eric and Katarn entered the compartment, and motioned for Ryla to follow the security detail. She was no stranger to peril, but that did not mean she lacked a healthy dose of fear. She drew a quiet breath to steady herself and followed the security officers down the ramp. The acrid smoke that hung in the air burned her eyes and throat. She coughed on the bitterness as they continued edging forward. Joseph kept his eye on the scene in before him. Making sure both he and Darlene were in front of the other team members as they walked, he arched his ear for any sounds that would indicate danger. The car turned slightly and looked at the doctor, then nodded to Eric and Gatan, who stepped beyond the trail. He took a whiff of the air, Something smelt wrong. Normally he'd have his phaser in his hand and ready for any sudden movement, but on Eric's orders he kept it holstered. Joseph knew this was going to be delicate. The reaction from the Romulan when permission was granted for the shuttle to come aboard was not favourable, and this made him nervous. But nerves should not be a factor in any mission that involved diplomacy. Where is everyone? asked Rilo in a hush meant only for the officers flanking her. Eric James answered in an equally quiet tone. Sensors pinpoint 20 survivors in the engine room. He opened his tricord and began scanning the bay. Good question, murmured Shelby as she walked forward a few more steps, while making sure her hand was free of her sidearm and openly displayed. Her grey orbs touched on each minute detail that caught her eye, looking for little things that might indicate what had taken place. There were no visible signs in the shuttle bay of a fight. Still, there were some things, an access panel had been removed and discarded haphazardly against one wall. There were signs that some breathing apparatus or medical supplies had been taken from a nearby wall cabinet, and a duly flashed lens beyond the door throbbed green.
3: Katan glanced at the flashing panel. On Romulan vessels, red is safety color, green indicates danger. The Trill doctor eyed the access panel as they carefully approached the exit and assumed that its contents had either been defensive or medical in nature. It looks like they took everything in a hurry, she uttered absently. Eric quietly surveyed the bay and inhaled the humid air before kneeling and placing his hand to the deck plate. Begin a scan for any life forms positioned outside of the cluster initially detected. With a nod, Katan activated his tricorder. He stepped over a length of scorched cable coiled on the deck. The tricorder gave a brief beep then fell silent. He stopped, studying the device in puzzlement. "'Found something, Mr. Katan asked James. "'I'm not sure, sir. No change in life sign readings, but I detect a quick energy spike.' He slowly rotated in place, holding the tricorder out before him. "'Whatever it was, it isn't registering anymore.' "'Keep your tricorders on active scan. There are more people here than we're picking up,' Eric whispered and craned his neck as if listening to something unseen. "'There are a few places on the ship where sensor echoes and shielding mask life signs.' It'll be helpful to know if something decides to join our little party. Otherwise, we should continue to engineering and retrieve our guests and some answers. Dr. Drett, Mr. DeCallen, Mr. Catan, you're with me. Ensign Dalen, I want you to return to the shuttle and secure it. We don't want to mount a rescue only to return to a sabotage vessel. With a nod, Shelby understood the importance of the XO's request. Her eyes went to DeCallan, who was now standing next to the door, and she briefly wondered if this was his idea of a joke. After all, he had tended to give her the nobody else wants these jobs detail lately. None of it mattered to the young ensign, though, as she listened to any other directions the commander might give. I know it doesn't need to be repeated, Eric made sure to make eye contact with each of his officers, but keep your phasers holstered and on stun. Do not draw any weapons unless placed in a life-threatening harm. Phasers will remain on stun unless I give specific orders to the contrary.
0: Sitting back, Galdar rubbed his hands across the top of his orange head. Exchanging a final glance with the engineer beside him, the lieutenant turned slightly in his chair. Captain, he called, there's something else you need to be aware of. Turning from Zrem's report, Savril leaned forward. Please extrapolate, Mr. Galdar. Swiveling in his chair fully now, Galdar straightened as much as he could. He had been aboard the Arabella for a while, but the ship hadn't seen action in that time. As a result, the Ferengi was still a little ill at ease amongst the bridge crew, and he hadn't really gotten a good feeling for his captain or her reactions. Captain, I've been monitoring strange readings from the vessel in front of us. There was no apology in his voice, although he hadn't been ordered to the task. When I saw the first strike, I thought it was some stray radiation. But I caught it again just as the runabout entered the cloaking field. I had no idea what it meant, but, with the help of Ensign Frida, I've narrowed it down to one possible source. Continue. Glancing to the engineer for confirmation, the pilot looks grave. Ma'am, it looks like the containment of the singularity at the heart of the vessel's warp drive is failing. The cloak is masking it from us at this angle, except when it's penetrated. Severil's stolid expression did not waver, though the tension she felt within lapped at her composure. It's not going to fail imminently, Frida stepped in briskly, but the evacuation is definitely a time-limited exercise. We want to be well away from here when she blows. Realizing he'd effectively issued an order to the captain, the ensign closed his mouth and colored slightly. How much time do we have? Galdar looked nervous. Ma'am. We can't perform a full analysis from this angle due to the effects of the cloak, but from the readings we have obtained, our initial estimate is no more than an hour, but maybe as little as thirty minutes." Swallowing, Galdar continued, I'm sure a proper engineering team could refine the estimate further. She thanked the officers before addressing the away team. Arabella to Commander James. James here, Captain. Mr. Galdar has exposed a deviation in the Romulan ship's warp core. Please conduct your evacuation with the utmost vehemence.
1: Cocking his head to one side as the captain warned Eric, Joseph raised his tricorder and did some calculations. He was getting interference. Nothing in this area, but definitely life signs ahead. He shook his head slightly and looked around the area and then at Katan. Not much of a party. He turned to the commander and raised his brow.
6: Nala's heart sounded like thunder in her ears as she eased along the corridor wall. She had slipped out of the cargo hold as soon as she heard of the impending arrival of the Starfleet shuttle. No one had noticed her departure. She would sooner die than fall into the hands of the hated Federation that had brought so much pain and ruin to her family. She thought back. Pardek had been a friend of her father's, a warbird commander who had served with the Jalak for many years. Following her father's betrayal, he'd been the only one to offer any support to her dishonored family. As a child, Pardek had took an interest in Nala's education, Any daughter of Jerox must be trained in the family business, he would joke. He taught her the basics of flight dynamics, and eventually Nala could become a skilled pilot of very small craft. It had been the only time Nala ever felt free, as she and Pardek would glide through the emptiness between Romulus and Remus. But a Federation shuttle was of similar dimensions to the Talon-class ship she had learned to pilot, and she hoped the controls would be intuitive. Either way, she was going to leave on that ship, either alone or dead.
4: Arabella to Commander James, came Savril's distant voice. Eric slapped the device pinned to his chest. James here, Captain. Mr. Galdar has exposed a deviation in the Romulan ship's warp core. Please conduct your evacuation with the utmost vehemence. Aye, Captain, Eric said and began to recalculate his plan. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a change in mission objectives. We're running short on time and we're going to have to approach this mission from a different angle. In addition to treating the wounded, I want main power and their cloaking device offline. We should be prepared to jettison the core to make it happen. If we eliminate the power, we should be able to remove the transporter interference. Mr. Katan and Dr. Dret, please head to engineering and see if you can treat the wounded. Katan, also see what you can do about shutting down the cloak from there. Eric took a deep breath and retrieved his gear bag from the runabout. Inside the small soft-sided black duffel bag was a collection of equipment that he had learned to bring after decades of being in the field and on the front line of the Federation war efforts. On his hip was his decidedly non-standard issue pistol-styled phaser in all its handcrafted uniqueness. Taking a small metal case from the black bag, Commander James opened it to reveal a variety of optional parts that could be fitted to the weapon. Deft Hands quietly added a small black box to the weapon under the barrel and forward of of the firing trigger. When activated, the accessory would generate a 10cm long laser cutting blade that might be required to get past the bulkhead doors of the engineering area. Eric also retrieved two of the six photon grenades from their place within his bag before tossing it back onto the ship. The support team should have included further charges and a few cutting tools on the shuttle. I'm not sure how much it's going to take to disable the power and the cloak on this bird, but gear up accordingly. He had given specific orders to the flight deck on what to include on the shuttle, but like any other war veteran, Eric found comfort in packing his own chute. He gave his orders to stop the ship with the equipment that his people might need for the current mission, but when he packed his own gear it was for a completely separate objective. He packed his gear to facilitate in the survival of his team and their return home. Rations, electronics, accessories to his weapon, spare power cells, and even bladed weapons that did not require power had found their way into becoming part of his standard away mission gear. Primary objective hasn't changed. We get everyone that we can help off the ship, The Procedure is still our main point of exit. I would like to get this dampening field offline and use the transporters, but we should work like it's not going to happen. We get to the people and move them into the shuttle bay. If we're able to get the transporter beam to work, we'll alter plans. Activate the locator beacons in your uniforms and have your life signs data sent to the runabout. Shelby will keep an eye on them and relay any major changes to the Doctor. Eric had become quite fond of his latest Starfleet-issue uniforms and the integrated technologies the illuminated and enhanced clothing provided. He was also quite happy that they chose to include an off-switch for the lighting when stealth was required.
5: Chief Engineer Tolok strode briskly into Shuttlebay Bay 2 and looked about him in what could only be described as satisfaction. From what he could already see, it was clear that the conversion was going well. The empty hangar deck was rapidly taking on the form of a temporary accommodation centre. With the shuttles gone, the space was vast on a starship scale, but for the number of people it was being equipped to cope with, it would still be a squeeze. Replicators along one wall would cater for the refugees' material needs while sleeping and communal areas were being constructed across the remainder of the deck. It wouldn't be a luxurious way to travel, but at least it would be safe. Were he human, Tolak would have to admit to having mixed feelings about taking on so many Romulans. As a Vulcan, however... All he could do was question the logic of the decision. It wasn't that he hated Romulans. That would be a logical and far too emotional response. He was aware of Romulan involvement in the destruction of Vulcan, however, and that made his logic in these matters... complicated. Filing the conundrum for later analysis and resolution, he turned to the approaching Beta Team leader. Lieutenant, your progress so far appears acceptable. Is there anything further that you might require in order to complete the task? He asked.
0: The lights carried by Katan and Ryla pierced the thick haze like radiant lances seeking an elusive target. They swept the contents of the engine room, occasionally crossing one another, before passing over a mass of people huddled on the opposite side. Tension mingled in the air with the contaminants their tri detected. Neither had been unexpected. The doctor's eyes briefly studied each of the group, before settling on a man, lying on the deck, with his head cradled in a woman's lap. Ryla slowly approached them as introductions were made by Lieutenant Commander Katan. She knelt beside the injured Romulan before turning her eyes on the woman holding him. May I? Once the stern-looking woman had nodded her curt response, Dr. Dret opened her kit and removed a medical tricorder. Her patient's caretaker said nothing but watched her with keen eyes, waiting for any sign of treachery from the Starfleet officer. Ryla activated the device and silently absorbed the readings it gathered. After a moment, she closed the tricorder and reached for a hypospray resting within her kit. As her fingers found the implement, the Romulan woman clasped her wrist with a powerful grip. A slight gasp of surprise called attention to her situation. Catan turned to see the kneeling doctor in the Romulan's clutches. I'm all right." Ryla uttered in a voice she rose high enough to be understood, yet not so loud as to upset the peace in the room. While preserving a calm demeanor, she attempted to reassure the agitated woman. This will reduce the swelling and ease his pain. I won't hurt him. Despite her attempt to repress it, the doctor's voice held a notable tremor. Fear was not its source. Instead, it was the acute pain associated with the unyielding clamp fixed to her wrist. She drew a sharp breath and let her assurance out with the exhale. I can help him. Please, allow me to do so. Though she was unsure of Ryla's honesty, the woman slowly released the chief medical officer. Under the Romulan's intense gaze, Dr. Dret tried to focus on her patient, yet the enduring pain she felt suggested a fractured bone. As she continued her work, The Trill promised herself that she would tend to it after the survivors were cared for. Shelby was by no means worried about staying alone with the shuttle,
2: rather she understood the reason for it. Inside the vessel, the ensign worked to link the life sign detectors on the team's uniforms to her tricorder so she could monitor them from the small device. Upon finishing, the half-Romulan woman walked back out into the bay and started to scan it for anything of interest going first along the wall she kept her sharp senses on at all times passing the panel which had been left exposed Daylin could see that in what appeared to be desperation someone had been switching and removing some of the crystals then she began to read a slight build-up it wasn't enough to worry about at this point but she would keep a close watch on it Upon finishing the scan, the ensign clicked back to the team's life signs again. She additionally noted the time, and was surprised a little by how much of it had gone by since the others had left to take care of their respected rescues. Soon, they would be coming back or calling for transport. There were no signs of trouble yet, but that didn't mean anything. Moving over to the shuttle, Shelby checked inside it, then came out and stood guard beside the entrance, waiting. It wouldn't be long now.
3: Well, there you go. Good stuff, huh? Again, thank you so much to everybody participating, and we would love to get your comments. Uh, audio comments that are very welcome. Send them in to the Ready Room Podcast at gmail.com. That's the Ready Room Podcast at Gmail dot com. We welcome emails. We welcome audio comments, whatever you want to do. You want to talk about your character, send us a little MP3 with, uh, uh with talking about your character and, and how you came up with them or, you know, whatever you want to do. We'd love to play something fun to let everybody know about you and your character. Or if you're just a listener to the ready room and you want to talk about if you like the writing or if you don't like it, whatever, send in an audio comment or send in an email. We'd love to read them or play them on the show. That's the ready room podcast at Gmail. I want to take a quick moment and say a special thanks to Kenny. You are just awesome. He puts together the program. You know, everybody sends in their stuff to him. He puts together the programs and sends it to me. I put music on it and then we send it to Rico. And uh, we just want to say thank you. I want to say thank you to you, Kenny, for doing all that work. Also, want to thank those that read Post this week uh, to Billy Bob, uh, 476, to Meds, Crystal, Dinghead, Rico, D'Angelis, Brian, and Jen. We really appreciate all the readings. And, of course, all of you that wrote this week did a fantastic job. And I uh, just want to say thanks. Okay, well, I think that's it for The Ready Room this week. Uh, you've been listening to The Ready Room Podcast, the Treks in Sci-Fi microcast. On behalf of Jen and Kenny, I want to uh, say thanks for listening. Hailing frequencies closed.
0: The Ready Room theme and other RPG music was composed by Rick Moyer. All other music was obtained through the Podsafe Music Network. Read more about the adventures of the USS Arabella at treksandsci fi.com.
6: Greetings, guildies.
3: I'm Kenny. And I'm Jenny. After listening to this great podcast, why don't we turn into
4: our podcast?
0: Knights of the Guild.
4: The official fan podcast for the web series
6: The Guild.
0: Each month, we'll bring you the latest news about the Guild cast, including what projects they're working on and what conventions they'll be attending.
6: Also, we'll be updating you on the current season.
0: We'll talk about some behind-the-scenes fun of Season 2.
6: As well as having cast, crew, and fan interviews.
0: So head over to iTunes and subscribe to Knights of the
6: Guild. Or go to our website for a direct download at knightsoftheguild.podbean.com.
3: Zaboo! (laughs) Hi, I'm Rick Moyer, and I want to tell you about my brand new podcast. It's called Take Him With You. Every week I talk about what's going on in my geeky little world of television, music, and in my faith. My hope is that in a world that can sometimes be really depressing, for at least a few moments you can be encouraged and smile a bit. So come check it out. www.takehimwithyou.com The weekly podcast that's spiritual, not religious. I'd love to have you listen. Thanks.
1: Hey, my name is Meds. And this is David Frost. You're not David Frost. I, I mean, this is Mark. And we are the... present Mark. All right. Get on with it. <laughs> okay. And we're the presenters of Waffle On Podcast. And we like to talk about... Crap. TV broadcast between 1960 to 1999. Would you say it's crap? Some of it. <laughs> really? Especially the British stuff. But we're having a podcast about that. So let's move up on that. Unbelievable. You can find us at the http colon forward slash forward slash... Waffleon.podbean.com. Do not smile when I say the word colon.
0: I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't think he likes you at all. (laughs) No, I don't like you either. (laughs) I love that. That is so great. That's good writing. Yes. Because it's not much dialogue. And because George Lucas didn't write all the... (coughs) (laughs) I'm Jen and I'm Angela and when you're not listening to this glorious podcast we would love to have you listen to ours the anomaly podcast that's a-n-o-m-a-l-y podcast.com